What you eat has a profound impact on your brain health and well-being. Today, I talk to certified nutrition specialist Amy Berger about the importance of a low-carbohydrate diet for your brain and Alzheimer's prevention. Hi, I'm neuroscientist Dr. Ben Webb and I want to help you cultivate a healthy brain for a mentally healthy and happy life. Welcome to episode 61 of Better Brain, Better You. Hope you're having a good week. Really pleased that you could join me for today's episode on how a low-carb diet can reduce your risk of Alzheimer's disease with nutritionist Amy Berger. Diet is one of the most important lifestyle factors for your brain health, but there are many other changes you can make to your lifestyle that will contribute to a healthy brain and protect you from brain diseases like Alzheimer's and stroke. And to help you, I've put together a free guide that shows you the six simple steps you can take right now to keep your brain healthy. You can get this free guide at ologyonlinecourses.com forward slash brain health. That's ologyonlinecourses.com forward slash brain health. Go ahead and download this free guide. It will help you to start optimizing your brain health straight away. Okay, so welcome to the podcast, Amy. Thanks. Thanks for having me here. So you were a US Air Force veteran who moved into the field of nutrition and you write about and help people with the ketogenic diets. So that's quite a tangent. What made you decide to change careers and train, train as a, a nutritionist? Well, I, I was already following a low carbohydrate diet for my own, uh, just my own life before I joined the military. And um, how did I, <laughs> the military doesn't really have much to do with it. That was kind of a weird tangent in my life. But um, I, I came into low carbohydrate nutrition the way a lot of other people do. I used to be heavier than I am now. And um, despite doing what I thought were all the right things, like healthy diet, low fat diet, lots of exercise, I could not lose weight. Like no matter what I did, no matter how hard I tried, I was healthy. I didn't have any health problems, but I was heavier. And um, I came across the Atkins book. That was my foray, my entree into all of this. And it just made sense. You know, even though it was so different from what we were used to hearing, because this we're going back almost 20 years at this point, you know, late, late 1990s for me is when I read that book. Um, and it just made sense to me and I tried it and it worked. And if anyone out there has tried a low carb or ketogenic diet and kind of has trouble sticking with it, you are not alone because I didn't stick with it right away. It took me a few stops and starts until it was just permanently the way that I eat. But um, after I, I had been in and out of a lot of jobs that I didn't find fulfilling and, and didn't really enjoy, and it occurred to me, oh, you know, nutritionist is a career. Maybe I could do that and I could help other people learn about this fabulous way of eating. So I went back to graduate school to study nutrition. And um, now I, I help clients with, with low carbon keto and I'm a, I'm a book author too. But the thing that I, I really like to tell people is even though I got into this personally for weight loss, and, and so many other people do too, over the years that I've been learning about this and, and researching how does this work, what is the biochemistry of it, 
I've come to appreciate that weight loss is one of the least impressive things that this way of eating can do for you. I mean, you can literally reverse type 2 diabetes, put things like PCOS into remission, you know, lower your blood pressure. Um, so the fact that you can lose weight is almost like an, a bonus on the side of these amazing health things. And um, that's, yeah, that's kind of how I got into it. <laughs> Wow. Wow. Amazing. So, and before that, were you, were you following just of interest? Were you following a kind of low fat diet and you were high exercise and low fat, that kind of, that kind of approach? I would say, to be honest, I, I wasn't as low fat as I probably thought I was, but I was, I was certainly high carb. I had mastered the high carb aspect. I mean, lots of whole grain, uh, lots of, you know, high fiber cereal every morning, skim milk, um, and, but I was, I was running regularly. I've, I've, I've run two marathons and I'm a very slow runner. Um, but you know, I wasn't afraid of a strenuous workout and just no matter what I did, the, the fat wouldn't budge. And I, I, at the time, like I mentioned, I was healthy, but I do have a family history of type two diabetes, cancer, obesity, and stroke. So we've, we've got some stuff in the family, but I was in my, uh, mid, mid twenties when I found this way of eating. So I think I, there's no doubt in my mind that had I continued to eat the way I was back then, then right now I would probably be living with morbid obesity, probably type two diabetes, PCOS, and all the other metabolic syndrome related things. Okay. Wow. So one of those things that is now sort of widely claimed is that, that, that this kind of diet can really help with, with things like Alzheimer's. So let's talk about Alzheimer's How So, how big a problem is this disease in the modern world now and going forward? It's enormous. I don't I don't remember the statistics off my head, but it is certainly I, I think one in 10 people over age 65, at least in the US, have Alzheimer's disease. And um, it, it's either the fifth or sixth leading cause of death in the US. And this is just a, a financial tsunami of burden. It is a personal and emotional burden, not, not just on the affected person, but on their whole family, their loved ones and caregivers. This, this is a disaster and it's only getting worse rapidly, I would say. Is it people often think of Alzheimer's, don't they, as a sort of disease of old, old people, but when, when do the brain signs of Alzheimer's actually start to show up? Is it, in, is it earlier in your life or is it, is it in, your, in your 60s? That's a great question. Yeah, they, people used to joke and call this old timers disease, right? Oh, you know, grandpa's losing his mind, grandma's getting senile. But now we are seeing people ever, ever younger being diagnosed with what they call early onset Alzheimer's in their 50s and 60s. So this is definitely happening to people younger, but you, you asked like the magic question because the thing people need to know is that the metabolic process that, I, I mean, we'll get into more detail, I'm sure, but the, the, the problem that starts triggering the memory loss and the personality changes actually begins in some people in their 30s and 40s, but they are still young enough and healthy enough that the brain is compensating. So they don't show any signs and symptoms of, of Alzheimer's or any kind of memory impairment. It's only when this problem has been going on for so long and becomes so severe that that's when you start showing those symptoms. But by the time that happens, the disease process has been in place for many years in most cases. And we don't we don't have a, a meaningful treatment, do we, at all, really, for this kind of debilitating condition? 
No, you know, there's no effect of pharmaceutical drugs. There are drugs available that they do almost nothing to impact the disease at, at best they can slow the decline. So you still get worse, you just get worse more slowly. There's no pharmaceutical drug, no surgery that can halt the process, let alone kind of reverse it and turn it backwards. But I mean, hopefully we'll, we'll talk about, I do think there are dietary therapies that can, can help. And I think they show the most promise compared to anything we have so far. Absolutely, we'll definitely get on get onto that. But given, the billions of dollars and pounds that have been spent on researching a treatment. Why, why do you think we've, we don't really have one that can reverse the condition? The, another good question. In, in my opinion, it's because we are chasing the wrong target. When you hear about Alzheimer's disease, you're constantly hearing about this amyloid, the, the neurofibrillary tangles, and so many of the, of the drugs for Alzheimer's are anti-amyloid drugs. They're intended to reduce the formation of those famous plaques except every single one of these drugs has been a colossal failure. They do nothing to, to retard the disease, or I mean, they, they do potentially slow the progression, like I said, but they don't do anything to improve the cognitive function. And I think it's because there's, there's kind of a new, I wanna say a new school of thought, it's not very new, it's just kind of finally getting some attention that a, a school of researchers that really is moving away from the amyloid focus, realizing this really isn't the issue. Because in fact, in one of the clinical trials, trials for the amyloid drug, the people on the drug were doing so much worse than the people on the placebo that it was deemed unethical to continue. They had to stop the clinical trial early. So we have a drug that actually does reduce the amyloid, but the patients actually got worse. So, you know, maybe we're looking at this amyloid all wrong. And so if we have been trying to treat the wrong target, then it's no wonder there hasn't really been any progress in the therapies. Yeah. So this beta amyloid and tau, these are the toxic proteins that are in the brain that essentially in, interfere with kind of neuronal processing in sort of two, two, two different ways. But so is that, do you think that the case is or the evidence suggests is that that they're a, a byproduct of the disease necessarily rather than actually the cause of the disease? Is that the sort of current thinking? Yes, and I that's that's a philosophy that I subscribe to as well because you, you said toxic proteins. And the thing is, everybody's brain produces amyloid. That's a normal thing in the brain. It's not specific to Alzheimer's. The problem in Alzheimer's is that the amyloid is not being cleared away properly. So it's just staying there and building up and accumulating into these solid plaques. And so it's not, um, it's almost like the sanitation crew is on strike. Like the, the people that are, the, the enzymes that are supposed to come and clear the amyloid away are not up to the task. And um, you know, the, the thing that I, I don't think people realize you can you can have very very severe alzheimer's disease with very little plaque accumulation and on the other hand you can have um lots and lots of plaque accumulation and no signs or symptoms of alzheimer's and they can really only identify this upon autopsy when they examine the brain but they have definitely found that there is plenty of all patients who die with alzheimer's disease or you know proposed alzheimer's disease who don't actually have a lot of plaque. And then there's people who, um, upon autopsy, the brain is examined and it's riddled with plaque and the person had no 
evidence of any kind of cognitive impairment. So clearly this plaque is not causing the disease. It could be, like you said, an effect, a byproduct, but it's not, it, it appears not to be the cause. So, and in your book, so the Alzheimer's antidote, it's called, and you, you, you make the case, the strong case that Alzheimer's actually results from, I guess you could essentially say a fuel shortage in the brain, that the brain can't really get enough energy because of insufficient fuel. So brain cells degrade and die, and this leads to the mental decline and memory loss that we see in Alzheimer's. So do you think you could, you could unpack that argument a bit for, for our viewers and listeners? Sure, yeah, it's all one of my favorite things to talk about. You know, if anyone is wondering why a low carbohydrate oriented nutritionist would, would have anything to say about Alzheimer's, it's because they regularly refer to Alzheimer's now as type three diabetes or diabetes of the brain. And where those phrases come from is that the primary problem in the brain of somebody with Alzheimer's or the, the precursor mild cognitive impairment is that the brain is for, for some reason, we don't really know why, but the brain is not able to take up and metabolize glucose properly. So like you said, it's a, it's a fuel shortage. It's basically an energy crisis in the brain. The neurons are effectively starving. And so what, what happens when we're, and if they don't have enough energy, what happens when we don't have enough energy? Let's say we don't sleep well, or we're, you know, burning the candle at both ends, we're tired. We get clumsy. We make mistakes we wouldn't normally make. Our personality changes. So imagine what happens in the brain when the brain is not getting enough fuel. And it's, um, this is absolutely the main problem in the disease. We just have not determined yet what, what is the cause of that. The fuel shortage is the problem, but what's causing the fuel shortage, that has not yet been identified. Okay. And there's uh, some of the, can we, can we sort of originate some of the problems with, uh, with, with the modern Western diet? I certainly think so. I mean, because the thing is, you know, when it comes to things like type two diabetes or obesity, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, we, everybody kind of agrees that those are driven by diet and lifestyle. You know, we could, we might debate which dietary factors are at work, but nobody, nobody dismisses the fact that diet and lifestyle are influencing those diseases. And yet when it comes to something like Alzheimer's, we, we dismiss even the mere possibility that this could be every bit a diet and lifestyle disease, just like all those other ones. And just like all those other ones that have exploded in incidence the past few decades, just like Alzheimer's, and that are also affecting people at younger ages, right? They used to call type two diabetes adult onset because it was only adults that would get it. Now we have children with type two diabetes. We have children with non-alcoholic fatty liver. We have children with metabolic syndrome. So um, I certainly think, and as much as I love that phrase type three diabetes, because it really immediately tells you, oh, is this, is this a glucose problem? Is this a blood sugar problem? The, there's a, a flaw in that thinking because we only diagnose diabetes by looking at one thing and that's the blood glucose or blood sugar. And um, there are many, many millions of people, and that's not an exaggeration, millions of people whose blood glucose is perfectly normal, but that glucose is only normal because it's being kept in check by very, very high insulin. And um, 
they've done you know numerous studies showing that even in people who don't have diabetes if you have chronically high insulin which is basically insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome they're just different ways of saying the same thing so even if your blood sugar is normal if you have that chronically high insulin you are at massively increased risk for developing alzheimer's in fact the um that phrase metabolic syndrome the association now between metabolic syndrome and cognitive impairment is so strong that they've actually coined the term metabolic cognitive syndrome if you go on PubMed or you go on some of the medical uh, databases, you will find papers with that in the title, the metabolic cognitive syndrome. So, so we should be measuring insulin levels, not blood sugar levels. Oh, I think we should be measuring both. But yeah, I mean, it's because type two diabetes definitely is is a risk factor for um, for Alzheimer's. But even if the blood sugar is normal, you, you definitely want to be looking at insulin. What would you say is the best way? to start fueling our brain to protect it against alzheimer's and actually improve improve our brain health yeah um lots of debate about this but in in my opinion i think um if to whatever extent the chronically high blood sugar and insulin may be driving some of this fuel shortage in the brain then we want to eat and live in a way that keep blood sugar and insulin within a healthy range and the the thing that affects those the most is the carbohydrate in your diet now that that's not the only thing i mean sleep stress there's a lot of even non-food non-diet factors that affect that but the the thing that we have a lot of control over that really has the biggest impact is the food so i do think that um some people will do best on very very little carbohydrate some people can be a little more generous with carbs and still do fine because um you know the reason i i say i say very low carb or, or ketogenic for two reasons i mean the first is we want to follow a diet that keeps that blood sugar and insulin within that healthy range but the the most encouraging most heartening thing about alzheimer's research right now is that even though the brain is not taking up and using glucose properly it will take up and use ketones and i i don't know if you know how savvy your audience is with ketones and ketogenic diets but ketones are just another kind of fuel that your body really only produces when you're on a low for most people when you're on a very low carb diet so if we want to give like think of the brain as a hybrid car it can run on glucose but it can also run on some other fuels and ketones are the the main you know best other fuel so we have to if we can possibly eat in a way that will help the body make some ketones to feed those starving neurons then that's that's the key so there's sort of the elements of a, a ketogenic diet are kind of low carbs, high fat. So why why is fat so important for the brain? Well, so you'll hear a lot that the brain doesn't use fat, like certain fats don't cross the blood brain barrier. And that's true, but some do. Some fatty acids do get into the brain. And while the neurons won't use them, other types of cells in the brain will metabolize the fats and they will turn those fats into ketones that they can like shuttle over to the neurons um but it's 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 not if if you're trying to generate ketones it's not even so much that the fat is important to eat a lot of fat 
the more important thing is to keep the carbs very, very low because what switches your sort of wholesale metabolism over to burning more fat and generating those ketones is the absence of the carbs, not just eating lots and lots of fat. Does a, a low carb, high fat diet or just low carb diet actually have consequences for other aspects of our health? So sounds like it's very good for our brain health, but let's say heart health or gut health, for example. Yeah, I think any, um, any condition related either caused by or made worse by that chronically high blood sugar and insulin is gonna get i should get better it will it, it may improve on a very low carb diet and i i collaborated with dr eric westman out of um duke university in the us we wrote a book called end your carb confusion that talks about exactly this like anything related to metabolic syndrome so excess body fat you know obesity type 2 diabetes hypertension, cardiovascular disease. Um, but there's a lot of things that people don't realize have um, get much, much better on a low carb or keto diet. And some of it has actually a lot of published research to back it up. Some of it is more anecdotal just from people reporting it. But, uh, you know, non-alcoholic fatty liver, PCOS, um, a lot of people, migraines, skin tags, other skin problems, joint pain, acid reflux. It's it sounds unbelievable to think that just just one diet could fix all that but it it really is true it's it's amazing what this it's just it's such a dramatic change to the way your body processes fuel that it really does affect so many different organs and tissues what are the kind of time scales if you want to switch over to this kind of low carb diet where you what's the sort of time scales over which you can start generating ketones um so it's it depends some people some people will just change their diet overnight clear out their pantry clear out their refrigerator and um in most pe if if you just switch right away and take all the sugar and starch out of your diet most people can start producing ketones within about 48 hours now that that doesn't mean that you're going to be fully adjusted and feel your best like it takes it takes a while for your body to adapt to these changes, but you will be actually generating the ketones for most people within about 48 hours. Because as soon as the um, the stored carbohydrate in your liver starts to run out, that's when and, and the insulin level comes down nice and low. That's when the body will start burning the fat and ketones are a byproduct of the fat burning. So just in a purely sort of practical sense, what sort of what sort of foods should we the types of kind of you know good foods that we should be introducing into our kitchen into our refrigerator for a kind of low for low carb cooking? Yeah, it's so the nice thing about this way of eating is it's entirely customizable to whatever somebody likes as long as the carbs are low. So if you 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 can do it as a vegetarian, it's difficult, but you can do it, especially if you eat eggs and dairy, it's easier than if you're a strict vegan. But um, you know, if you don't if you don't like fish or you're allergic to fish or if you keep kosher or eat halal, you can totally customize the types of foods you eat. The the principle is to keep the carbs low. So most people that don't have any restrictions will eat you know, a fair amount of red meat, poultry, eggs, seafood, um, non-starchy vegetables. So we tend to think of those as any kind of leafy green, any kind of lettuce. We, we tend to call them the above ground vegetables because most of the vegetables that are starchy grow below ground, like the potatoes, uh, carrots, beets, the starchy roots. 
but you uh you have to either avoid grains like corn wheat rice all of that or there there are a lot of very low carbohydrate higher fiber crackers and wraps and things available that some some people can include and still get the good effects of the diet some people it, it doesn't work as well when they include that but that's the main thing and you know cheese butter um you can have your coffee thank goodness because <laughs> i'm a coffee junkie um all it really is is just real food normal food without the sugar and starch okay i know i, I remember now from your book that you do you sort of you devoted a whole chapter i think if i remember correctly to cholesterol because I can, I can think of, you know, can hear people, some of the kind of, you know, the, the foods that you're talking about there are obviously going to kind of have, you know, cholesterol associated with them. So d does high cholesterol matter or not in this diet? That's a good question. The research is ongoing, but one thing, one thing we do know is that cholesterol in your food has almost no effect on the cholesterol in your blood. So if you eat a lot of eggs or you eat a lot of butter, it has very little effect on your blood cholesterol level. And the thing is, there's so much debate right now as to whether high cholesterol is problematic anyway. So it, the truth is in most people who adopt a low carb diet, the total cholesterol actually comes down in most people. There's a subset of people in whom it goes up a little bit and there's a smaller subset in whom the cholesterol goes up a lot. But in all of these cases, what we do see is that the HDL tends to go up, the triglycerides come down a lot, and that ratio between the, uh, well, they usually call it the triglyceride to HDL ratio, appears to be a much uh, more accurate predictor of, of cardiovascular status compared to your total cholesterol or even your LDL. Um, but you know, if, if people are concerned, and I, I don't think they need to be, but you can do a low carb diet that is richer in poultry and seafood. You know, you don't have to eat a lot of red meat or fatty pork or, or fatty dairy products if you don't want to. It sounds like a wonderful diet for, for Alzheimer's, you know, and, and many other disorders as well. So do, from, from the research that you've done and the evidence is out there, can Alzheimer's be prevented through diet changes alone? Or something I imagine people will wonder is, is there a genetic component to it as well? So, okay, two separate issues. The, um, I, I wish that I could say, yes, you can prevent Alzheimer's. We don't, we don't know that yet. I, I think we can to the extent that it is a metabolic sort of diet and lifestyle disease. There's no reason we shouldn't be able to prevent it, but we don't, we don't know yet. I think there are, there are a lot of other factors at work like apart from all of the glucose and insulin things that we've been talking about a vitamin b12 deficiency all by itself can impact cognitive function um, use of statin drugs to, that, that are cholesterol lowering drugs are known to interfere with cognitive function in some people in fact in the uh in the u.s our food and drug administration that regulates the pharmaceutical drugs has added that warning to statin labels that you may experience confusion and memory loss and all that. So there's other things that contribute, but to the extent that we, I, I, I think we can prevent it, but I can't say for sure. And, and people ask me, do I need, if, if we can prevent it, do I need to follow a ketogenic diet? Like I'm, I'm 75 years old. I've been eating sugar my whole life. Is it too late? What I, and 
I don't think everybody does need a strict ketogenic or low carb diet. Like I said earlier, what we do probably have to do is eat and live in whatever way can, can help us keep blood sugar and insulin in a healthy range. And the amount of carbohydrate that anyone can eat and still accomplish that is gonna be different. Um, but with regard to the genetics, that's, that's a fascinating area because I'm sure most, most people watching your show have heard of the ApoE4 gene, if they have any interest in, in the brain health. So the ApoE4 gene is the strongest known genetic risk factor. But just like with the amyloid plaques, you can have the ApoE4 gene, even two copies, and never develop Alzheimer's. And of course, millions of people who do have Alzheimer's don't carry the E4 gene. So the E4 gene definitely makes you more susceptible. It increases the likelihood that you might develop it, but it doesn't cause it. Because otherwise, everybody with E4 would have Alzheimer's. And um, what's, what's fascinating to me is that um, the eight, so there's three kinds of this ApoE gene in the human family, the two, three, and four. There is a one, but I think it's in other primates. It's not in humans or something, but the ApoE4 var variant is believed to be the oldest. Like, so it was forged in an evolutionary time when our whole dietary and environmental landscape was totally different. And it, it, it appears that, that the ApoE4 gene was selected against in populations that have a longer history of grain agriculture. So theoretically, in populations that have a longer history of exposure to a higher carbohydrate diet, this gene was selected against. So what that means is if you have the E4 gene in the modern world, you are probably not well suited for a very high carb diet. It's, it's like a, it's a hunter gatherer type gene. So, um, I think like I, I, I like to emphasize that for people because I know if people find out they have E4, they, they get very scared and they like, they think that they're just, it's a death sentence. They're going to get Alzheimer's and that's not, it, it doesn't have to be that way. No, no, no. Lifestyle is so important, isn't it? So, and what, what other, other than, other than the ketogenic diet, what other lifestyle ch changes would you recommend? I noticed you devoted a chapter to that as well for protecting your brain health against the mental decline and memory loss we see with Alzheimer's. Yeah, I think um, something I personally need to work on a lot more is sleep. You know, I don't think we, uh, we really don't appreciate the critical importance of sleep. You know, sleep is when the brain sort of clean, like house cleans. That's, that's when the, the processes that clear away the amyloid happen. I think they happen all the time, but they're upregulated while we sleep. So we want to make sure that we're getting good quality and quantity of sleep. I think um, physical activity is important to the extent that it helps with blood sugar and insulin handling. You know, it's really good. Even, even if it's not the greatest tool for weight loss, it is very good for managing blood sugar and insulin sensitivity. So I think staying active, um, something I wanna, this, I guess you could call this a dietary factor. I don't know if, um, can I talk about like MCT oil and, the, and all that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Even, even people who really enjoy and like low carbon ketogenic diets, it can be difficult to stick to it all the time. Some people have no problem. And then others, it's really, you know, they're on again, off again, or they just, they 
on it a little bit. And, and that's under the best case circumstance. Now, picture somebody who has dementia, who doesn't understand why they're not allowed to have their blueberry muffin for breakfast anymore, or, you know, they might even be belligerent. So for people that are unable or unwilling to do a low carb diet, there are other ways to get ketones into the starving brain. And um, one of them is using MCT oil or co coconut oil, which is rich in the medium chain fats. And the reason those are so good for the brain is that even if you are eating a lot of carbs, even when you're not on a low carb diet, the way the body processes those medium chain fats, they get more readily converted into ketones. So you can still kind of get a little bit of ketones um, regardless of your diet if you use the coconut or MCT oil. And there's also these new things called exogenous ketones. And exogenous just means from the outside. So this is like a, like a supplement that you can take that's ketones. And there's two forms that I know of. There's one that's a powder that you can just mix in water and you drink it. And the other is an ester that is, it's, it's also a liquid. It's very, um, it's not very palatable, but it's, it's powerful and effective. It just doesn't taste very good. But these are ways to um, also, if regardless of your actual diet, if you take these ketone supplements, you can raise the ketone level and, and get ketones into the brain. And the research on this is really, really promising. But if, if the, and, and if, if the crisis is this, the brain is starving, then we want to get fuel there any way we can, whether it's the ketogenic diet or um, with, with these exogenous ketones. But if, if, and that will close the fuel gap a little bit, but if the fuel gap is being caused by the fundamental like metabolic abnormality, metabolic syndrome or diabetes, then we need to fix that because if you just give the ketones, you're, you're taking care of the symptom, but you're ignoring the underlying problem. So, but I think if somebody is, is in a very severe state, if they're very advanced dementia or Alzheimer's, you're not going to get that person to do a ketogenic diet. Like by all means, give them the exogenous ketones. We want to fuel that brain any way we can, but in somebody who's younger, you know, like if you are in your fifties and sixties and you're starting to show signs of this, then I do think um, you want to definitely try to change your diet and lifestyle to the extent that you can. I love your practical approach to the whole thing. It is fantastic. So so thanks so much for spending time with us today, Amy. It's been fascinating hearing your story and the amazing work you're doing on ketogenic, ketogenic diets and Alzheimer's prevention. So your book, The Alzheimer's Antidote, is available to buy from all the usual book, out book outlets. And if you want to reach out to Amy and follow her work, you can find her at chewitnutrition.com and on social media at chewitnutrition. So thanks so much, Amy. But before before we finish up, what would if someone was to ask, what's the what's the, you might have already covered this already in your last comment actually, but what's the what's the single most important piece of advice you would give someone on how to change their diet to start improving their brain health? I would cut the carbs. And, and you, you don't have to jump into a very low carb diet overnight. It's okay to move into it gradually, start just cutting certain things out of your diet. But that's, that's what I would do is just start cutting those carbs. Okay. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you. I hope it's helpful for people. Thanks so much to Amy for some really important insights about the importance of a low carb diet for the brain. Her book, 
The Alzheimer's Antidote is available to buy from all bookstores. And I hope today's episode on how a low-carb diet can reduce your risk of Alzheimer's with nutritionist Amy Berger was helpful. It's been a pleasure spending time with you, and I will look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you.